In this episode of Designland, we talk about burnout, the guiding principles for addressing burnout, why burnout is one of the most pressing issues in healthcare, and we talk about can burnout actually be reversed. I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Sudhakar Nuthi. He is a primary care doctor and public servant who seeks to use clinical medicine, science, and policy to improve the health of disadvantaged people in America. He trained in medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic and will start working in the New York City public health care system later this year, caring for people experiencing homelessness. He has done extensive research studying health disparities in the U.S. and has worked in health departments of New York City and North Carolina to design and implement policies and programs to improve health equity. For his work, he's been recognized as one of Forbes 30 under 30 in healthcare, a 40 under 40 leader in health by the National Minority Quality Forum and a stat wonderkind. Sudhakar obtained his BA and MD from Yale University an MSc in Public Health from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. If you are a regular listener to Design Lab and haven't signed up for our newsletter, you are missing out. Go to the podcast show notes to subscribe. I know I say this every week, but I want to give everyone an opportunity to support the podcast. You can do that by going to Apple Podcasts, giving us five stars, leaving us a review, and telling a friend about the show. Now, here's my conversation with Sudarkar Nuthi. Sudarkar Nuthi, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so stoked you're here. Thanks, Bon. Thanks for having me. I first found out about you through a really honest and inspiring article that you wrote in Stat News. We'll link that in the podcast show notes. You wrote in that article... I worry, and this is a direct quote from you, I worry that burnout can't be reversed and has fundamentally changed me as a doctor and a person. What compelled you to write this article? You know, it's a good question, Bon. I think I just, I think there are probably a few things. One is I had a lot of like feelings within me that I was carrying and I didn't know what to do with them. And so I got to be a part of this like writing workshop dealio called the op-ed project they had like a fellowship for like public voices uh at mass general and so i was part of this and so we're thinking about like writing things and i realized there wasn't much that was being said about people and how they feel on the front lines i think Mm. a lot of folks have tried to capture like how intense it is and how difficult it is but especially from a trainee perspective i mean i don't think many trainees have the space or the opportunity or the time or the energy to communicate about how they're feeling yeah and so and and you were a pgy3 in internal medicine when you wrote this again that's uh you in your third year of residency i th- yeah i think yeah i was in my third year of residency man it's a blur so I started writing this in my second year of residency and it came out in my third year of residency Uh in the beginning of it. And so all these feelings I had, and then the opportunity that was there with this op-ed project really allowed me to put my feelings on paper and sort of workshop them. And it took me months because I was just, as I wrote in the beginning, I was then an Uber ride to one of the community clinics, the community hospital that we work at with one of my co-residents. And I told him I'm writing this piece about burnout, but 
I haven't really gotten to work on it in a few months. And he laughed at me, he says, you know, sounds like you're too burnt out to write about burnout. <laughs> and and I was like, shit, you're totally <laughs> correct. And so like that's I, I put that in the piece because I'm like, that's very like that's that was sort of what it is. It took me so long to write it because I was just so burnt out. And whenever I had like an opportunity to like put some words on paper, I would just like type it in my notes app on my phone. And then over time it became what it was. I think a lot of people feel that burnout is a temporary thing. And if you do an intervention, burnout can be relieved. And but yeah, I thought it was curious that you you had some insight of like what if burnout can't be reversed and you know we're seeing a lot of physicians leave the practice there was a study done in JAMA Journal of the American Medical Association that says one in five physicians intend to leave their practice like 20% of us are leaving the practice so that maybe because of some of this burnout that is not reversible that it's too much. And I personally know many physicians who are good colleagues, great friends, people very close to me who are thinking about leaving or who have left the practice of medicine. Yeah, I was playing around with the idea of like, you know, think about what's happening and how I'm feeling. Because I mean, the word burnout, I think you talk to any physician and that phrase is something that they've heard before, if not felt within themselves, whatever that means to them, which means that it's incredibly common. I think the data shows that the majority of trainees, like 75% of trainees is probably even more are burnt out during their training. Trainees being you know, people who have finished medical school and are doing residency training to specialize in one field of medicine or the other. And mm-hmm. so- And I wanna preface that that is probably even before the pandemic, right? Yeah, this is before the, yeah, that's before the pandemic. And so it's part of like the culture and the discourse is this idea of burnout and how do we take care of mental health and well-being. And I think everyone's very well-intentioned in trying to do that, but it's all with this idea that we could reverse whatever's happening or we could prevent whatever's happening. And in my head, I was tying around that, toying around with this idea of, you know, what if we can't, or what if we try and, and we fail, or what if, you know, burnout can't be reversed? Like, what does that mean? And the phrasing that sort of came to me is like, I just felt a little bit charred. Mm. You know, I just felt charred. Like I was on the fire for a bit too long and I got brittle and just, just pieces of me are falling off, which is like mm. this incredibly grim and terrible way to like envision it. And it's a terrible way to feel. But I, I think that once I got to that concept and that idea, it really resonated with me. It actually resonated with a bunch of my friends that I shared it with that uh-huh. they felt charred too. That like, Part yeah, of, I'm curious like to know. Yeah. yeah, what was the reaction from other of your colleagues and friends when that article came out? My closest friends, I like shared it with them before it came out. The people who are trainees are like, I totally get it, and I'm so sorry, and you know, thank you for putting this to words because I feel this way too. The people who are not in medicine were like, I'm so sorry for you. This is terrible. I wish you told me sooner. I work. When I was in residency, my primary care practice was in this town called Chelsea, which is a largely immigrant population. And when the article came out and folks shared it around Chelsea, I found that, you know, everyone in the clinic resonated with that and felt that way, not just physicians or clinicians, you know, the medical assistants, the people working in the front desk, 
as the clinic was transformed into to a COVID testing unit. And we've, we've all like been at the front lines of this pandemic and continue to be on the front lines of this pandemic that hasn't ended for such a long time. And it was so acute in the beginning. I mean, I'm sure you remember, especially being mm-hmm. in the ED, that everyone sort of felt a piece of this, a piece of what I shared sort of resonated with them in one way or another. And so I didn't expect to hear from so many people that are like, I feel the same way, or I felt this way before, and maybe it gets better and maybe it doesn't. But it was largely, (laughs) I don't know if it's a good thing or not. It's kind of sad that a lot of people agreed with feeling the way that I was feeling too. That's so surprising because when we have these informal conversations, like everyone feels like they're burnt out, but very few of us speak about it on a public stage. Yeah. Yeah. I was nervous about that, Bon. To be honest, I was like, do I share this? Do I write about this at all? And then... Because did you feel like a pressure in our system of like not to do it? It's not explicit, but maybe it's implicit that, oh yeah, we're not going to complain. We're not going to... Maybe the... I'm having a hard time trying to describe it, but I feel this kind of like pressure not to openly talk about it, be candid. 100%. 100%. I think part of it is that and part of it is like, will it like damage my like career somehow? Those are like the the big like doom and gloom things as I'm like spending hours and hours working on this on the tail end of an 80 plus hour work week. And I'm just like, oh, like, do I really want to share this with the world? And I think part of it was pressure that I felt not to look. I'm sure you have colleagues when you were training and you talk with trainees. I have colleagues who are you know, residents and fellows, like you're supposed to work an average of 80 hours a week over four weeks. That's the maximum. And they work hundred hours a week and their program, like the culture and the program, not where I trained, but other places was like, you should not report that. Yeah. You're not supposed to do that. Or will, will there'll be like the ACGME, which is like the governing board of graduate medical education will come and investigate you. And so like people just don't they're not honest about how much they work yeah. and even like they work more than they're supposed to legally. Yeah. And so that type of culture is very pervasive in medicine. Yeah. And I think it's like hard to like be the person that says, Hey, look like this, this is what's happening actually every day. Yeah. And I realized, you know, I had this, I was in this like special position and I, you know, I didn't grow up with much, but I've come to be in a place where I'm privileged. I have power. I'm like a resident physician at Mass General, was like Ivy League trained, you know, came from single parent on food stamps and Section 8 housing. And I'm like, you know, mm. if someone has power to speak for those who can't, then they should use it. And I, you know, Sadaka, you got to walk the walk here. And I think there are a lot of people where if there's one person who this helped, I think it would have been worth it. I think it's mm. more than one person with, with this resonated with. And so I'm glad that I sort of found like the courage to share it. Yeah. Okay. There's so many different directions I want to go here. I wanted to get your thoughts on what are ways that we can address burnout in the physician workforce? Do you have thoughts of maybe some guiding principles for addressing burnout or methods for addressing it? Because you are in the thick of it. You know, when we talk about clinician burnout, often the people that are speaking are clinician leaders or administrators or system leaders who don't practice clinically anymore? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a hard question, a big question, right? Because we've known about burnout for decades and we haven't really 
made a dent in it. And yeah. so I'm so old that we just didn't, <laughs> we, we didn't call it burnout. It's like, oh, I feel tired. I yeah. feel like <laughs> I feel stressed. I'm uh, working, you know, 80 hour weeks. And then later, I was like, they called it burnout. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I experienced that <laughs> as a resident. Yeah, 100%. Right. And so I don't know if I have all of the answers, but I think, you know, in reflecting on this a little bit, and one thing is we just have to acknowledge that it's a problem, right? And it's not something that'll be amenable to a quick fix. You're talking about people who are working a job, a baseline, put COVID pandemic aside, and we could talk about the effects that has on top of everything that are working really hard for long hours, trying to care for people who are at their most vulnerable. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes we fail. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to work mm -hmm. long, hard hours every day, trying to improve people's lives and failing. And then they like die or they like get even sicker. Something bad happens. And it's just like this terrible thing to feel. And then you just have to keep working. And then you're on one rotation to the next rotation, to the next one, to the next one. And we don't really acknowledge I mean, we, we talk about it, but there's never really a space to decompress and say like, this is really a problem and something mm -hmm. that is like a symptom of a larger disease that we have in healthcare where we just like push, 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 and we put stuff aside, like the, the side effects of that. And so I think number one is acknowledging that we have a problem. I think like we also have to like measure it. Mm. I don't think anyone's really measured burnout. Like I don't think there's like a metric that is like standardized where we could like apply across places and people to say like, this is like the proportion of people who are feeling this way at your institution. You know, and what if there was a world where, you know, the gov like CMS, like Medicare and Medicaid, federal government, like, say like this is the metric. And what if we measure you on that? What if we publicly report it? Mm -hmm. What if we in like incentivize you financially to promote employee health. So I think like having metrics to actually say like, hey, there is a problem, then finding a way to measure that problem and then have incentives to address it is important. And I think at the same time, you know, I've talked with a lot of folks about residency and training and burnout after having written this piece. And a lot of older physicians are like, look, it was even harder in my day. I worked even more. And I'm like, I totally hear that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we should be working as much as we work anyway. Yeah. Like, do we really, like, is 80 hours a week, is two full-time jobs the baseline expectation, you know, for people to be working days and then going to nights and then doing 30-hour shifts? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. And there, there must be a better way. And yeah. so I think those are the ways I would sort of think about it, thinking about acknowledging we have a problem, like, measuring it, incentivizing, we change it and like trying to make steps now and trying to move away from the idea that 80 hour work week is the standard that we should hold ourselves to. I think we could do better than that. And I'm going to raise my hand guilty for being one of those older physicians who go, Hey, it wasn't, it's not as bad as when I was a, a resident, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, but that's how like screwed up the culture of medicine is. It's like, yo, yeah. I got abused. Yeah, other people you're getting abused less than me. Yeah. So it's like, listen, let's yeah. just stop the abuse. Exactly. That shouldn't be part of the training process. One hundred percent. And then you overlay on that a pandemic, right? That we don't really see, I don't know when it's gonna end, but 
like to to be on the front lines of this, especially as a trainee at Mass General, all of the medicine floors were closed, and then we just opened up ICUs, and we just like started working in the ICU twenty four seven until the first surge was over. And like mm-hmm. there was no choice in that matter. Right? It was what we had to do. It was the right thing to do. But as a trainee, you don't really have autonomy in how your time is used. Mm. You know, you're just there to address the problem at hand. And being in that position, and then continuing to be on the front line, seeing my colleagues get sick with COVID and be out, and then putting the strain on the residency because of that. I mean, it, it's like it's doubly hard to be a resident during a pandemic mm. that affects you personally. It's not yeah. just like the patients that we care for, but it's. It's we as people too. Yeah. You know, and so I think that's the difference. Because residents and nurses are the people in the hospital the most. Yeah. And you have borne the brunt of caring for patients in the pandemic. Yeah. And there, it's not like there's a break, mm-hmm. you know, it's just there was business as usual. Then there was like the surges as they come and go. And in between the surges are business as usual. It's not like there's like a break to like say, hey, look, you should take some time. You should decompress. You should, you know, focus on your your physical and mental health and well being. It's like, oh no, let's let's get back to business yeah. as usual. That that's been the most depressing thing for me. That here is an opportunity of, hey, can we redesign the system? Because the pandemic showed the fractures of the system, but as we're receding from the virus not really but you know that we're going to back to business as usual which is really depressing it is i thought there would be this opportunity to introduce some systemic changes and and i'm like curious to know what are some of your thoughts on some of the band-aids we put up on burnout you know we see some of the interventions being like meditation or social events or relaxation techniques or free pizza for the staff. Yeah. Look, I think they're well-intentioned. There's part of me that's like, really like, what is this? This is like total BS. But I think they come from a well-intentioned place. Yeah. Like I started using the Headspace meditation app and I still use it every day. And I think it's been helpful for me, but we just don't know anything, right? We don't know anything about burnout. We haven't measured it over time. We don't know what interventions work. And what's like easy to do and like within our control is like buy pizza and get everyone a Patagonia fleece and like a new set of scrubs and say like, thank you so much for your work. And like, that's great to like be acknowledged, but really what I need is some time off. You know, that's what I, that's what I really need, but you can't give me that. So you could give me like some things that are on the side, but to act like that would actually address the underlying cause of this problem is just very blind. Mm. Yeah. And it seems that so many of the burnout interventions are focused individually, you know, this like building individual resilience rather than Mm -hmm. systemic design changes for a broken system. And yeah, you could build our individual resilience, but doctors are some of the most resilient people I know, (laughs) like in society. So they're already resilient. Okay. I don't think that is the issue. It may be with some, a subpopulation that needs that individual resilience building up. But I think on the whole, doctors are pretty resilient. 
I think that's right. It's hard. It's hard because then like we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about mental health. Like physicians don't talk about it amongst each other. They don't talk about going to therapy or the problems that they have. I mean, we know that physicians have a higher suicide rate on average than the general population. I mean, they, yeah. they deal with their stresses. And then there were a couple of suicides even you know, at the clinic that I worked at in the three years that I was there mm. with you know, one of the physicians and one of the other longtime clinical staff. And so like, we don't even talk about the problem. And so for us to try to think about how to address it is hard individually and at a system level. And so, but I think you're right, Vaughn. Like we live in a system that expects us to do everything that we can until we can't anymore and then asks us to try a little harder. Mm. And then when we absolutely fail, when we have like a mental breakdown or a physical health breakdown, then we're like, oh, okay, you should take some time off. But we work people to the point of that. Yeah. And I think part of it's like, you were worked to the point of that. And I was worked to the point of that. So like, you know, like, oh, it's not as bad. Like, just like, you know, keep going. But we have this empathy for our patients, but often we don't have it for each other. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, wow, this patient's going through a lot. Like it's really hard to deal with diabetes and the complications of it. It's really hard to be a resident too, you know, and the complications of that. And so I just think for whatever reason, we don't think about ourselves in the same way that we think about our patients. We think about ourselves as, you know, we have to be the sacrifice, like we have to be these selfless sacrificial people because that's who we are. That's part of our identity. That's reinforced in our identity. And we should do everything we can to sacrifice ourselves in service of our patients and our colleagues. And we have a system that promotes that and doesn't mm. necessarily protect us from pushing ourselves further than we should. And the system has been designed that there is no flex in the system. Like, for example, if you get sick and can't show up to your shift, literally the on call system gets alerted, and someone who was maybe not working or doing something very light and was maybe getting a mental health break from the clinical duties has to get called in and cover that shift. Yeah. Like there is no flex in the system. There isn't. And even now it's become even harder with Omicron, right? Because we have like a backup pool and then the backup pool is exhausted, like every, yeah. every block. And then there's backup, backup. Now we have a backup, backup list. Then yeah. the backup, backup list is full. Then they're calling people for backup, backup, backup. Like, could you imagine that? Like, oh, like we'll pay you to work extra because we just don't have enough people to work because everyone's sick with COVID. Yeah. On the one hand, you know, acknowledging that our system was not built to deal with a pandemic that affects everyone. But this was a problem before. This was a problem. Still, it was probably before. Yeah. Yeah. This is a problem before, and so it's hard. It's hard to like make the system better that doesn't really have much room to grow unless you fundamentally transform the way it looks. Do you worry about the future of the healthcare workforce? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing I can't speak to yet, Bon, is, you know, if we say like being a trainee during a pandemic was the thing that caused me to be burned out, I'm now two weeks being removed from it. So I don't really know what it feels like. Congratulations for just finishing one of the hardest professional training programs out there. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Yeah. Like, so I don't really know what it means to not be in that position. And so I don't know what it means to recover from burnout. 
and how that looks and whether like the char disappears or it stays hanging on to, I don't, I don't know personally what that looks like, but I definitely am worried because even again, before the pandemic, if you look at the data from medical students to resident trainees to fellows, most of them are burnt out. I think the pandemic obviously put extra stresses that made it personal and not just professional for a lot of folks. And people are leaving. We already don't have enough physicians. Mm. And people are leaving. I don't see any reason for them to stop leaving. Mm. And so I worry. I worry what's going to happen to our patients, especially the people who are in the most vulnerable positions, who need doctors and who don't have them. And I always say that burnout physicians are going to give burnt out care. So it's better for patient care if we have physicians who aren't burned out because I've seen this before. I've seen well-intentioned, good people deliver less empathetic care because they're burnt out. Yeah, they just don't have a capacity to be human Yeah, because it's hard. And you just have to survive because you have to work that shift. And there's no wiggle room. Yeah. And that's really tough. If you could advise the younger Sudakar <laughs> whether he should pursue a career in medicine, what would you say to him, knowing what you know now? You know, I've actually been thinking about this question, Bon. You know, would I do this again? Look, I wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid, you know, since I was like three years old, because I had this amazing pediatrician. You know, my dad wasn't really around when I grew up. So like my pediatrician was my father figure. His name was Dr. Falk. And I'm like, I want to be like Dr. Falk when I grow up. And that's, that was like my driving motivation my entire life. You know, mm -hmm. whether it's like my mom being like, you have to go to school and get good grades if you want to be a doctor. And I'm like, yes, I have to go to school and get good grades to be a doctor. And then being in the position to be a physician and go to medical school and then being a resident. I mean, that was the dream and I'm living the dream. And I'm like, so grateful. Like this is my American dream and I'm living yeah. it. Because you're, were you born here in the US? I was born in India, but I came when I was a baby, came to Connecticut when I was a baby. And so like, this is the immigrant dream, yeah. right? And I think you're familiar with that yourself. That, yeah, that, that was my dream. I came, you know, my parents came here just before I was born, but it was their dream, literally their dream for me to come to the US to go to an Ivy League school and be a physician. Like that was their dream. I don't yeah. know if it was my dream, but... <laughs> It became my dream. Yeah. So we are the embodiment of an immigrant's dream, at least from like South Asia, East Asia. A lot of parents are yeah, like yeah. that. 100% man. I'm sure every immigrant parent would love their <laughs> child to be a physician, right? And it was definitely my dream ever since I was a kid. And so I'm like grateful to be in this position like infinitely. And I would do it again. But what I would tell myself is that I need to think about and care about myself as a person, mm. like physically and mentally think about my mental health. I mean, I wish I had gotten like a therapist when I started residency. Like, wouldn't yeah. that have been great to like have someone to like help workshop how I'm feeling and how to deal yeah. with the stresses of this job, which is infinitely difficult. Gosh, that so, should, that should, but that should just be normalized, that should, right? Every, like, every physician should have a therapist. Like, yeah. It should be an opt-out thing, but then they're yeah. not even a therapist for our patients. And so- I love the opt-out thing yeah, though. That like, would be, it's that would like, be ideal. Yeah, he, here's, yeah, here's your therapist. You can opt out of it if you want, but you have an appointment next week by yeah. Zoom for 30 minutes. You can opt yeah. out if you want. Yeah. I love that. Wouldn't that be great? But as Asians, we don't do that, right? Yeah, it's we not, don't. Yeah, right? we don't take care taboo? of our mental health. Yeah, totally taboo. We don't even, we don't even talk about it. We don't talk yeah. about mental health. We don't talk about like trauma that people have experienced. I mean, this experience of COVID is traumatic. Like, yeah. 
no one's talking about it. Yeah. You just talk about it among friends, like, oh yeah, I saw this person die. And they were like grasping for things because they were like hypoxic and they couldn't breathe because they didn't have enough oxygen. Yeah. We had to like make them comfortable and then they passed away and then the family couldn't come on time and they were devastated. Like we don't talk about that experiencing that day after day after day. And so I think I would tell myself, your mental health is a thing. Number one, number two, it's important. And number three, you should like prophylactically try to help yourself there Mm. and give yourself like the tools and the support system to deal with the difficulties that are to come. Mm. I think I've talked about burnout as this, if you kind of compare it to an infectious disease, like a virus. Yeah. And then like, how could, you know, how can we inoculate ourselves? What, what are some sort of the vaccines we could give to residents in their training and you, if physicians to ward off the effects of this virus that has infected the majority of physicians? That's an excellent question. I think part of it is some of the stuff that we've talked yeah. about already. I know like they're much smarter people than me that have thought about this a lot. I think it's having space to have discourse. It's having tools that are available that people can take advantage of that ideally they default to having, whether it's therapy or like figuring out like what works for you to care for your mental health, if it's meditation, whatever it is. I mean, some people might think these things are hokey, but they work. And you just figure out what works for you and have the time and space and opportunity to figure that out. Ideally, maybe during orientation, you you could do therapy once and mm. you're like, is this something that'll work for me moving forward or is it something else? And then I think it's really, it has to be system things. Like I yeah. don't know, other than like having time away from work, I don't know what what could have prevented burnout. And I think mm-hmm. the thing that also makes it hard is normally you have the social structure to lean on within your residency program, but then COVID just sort of took that away, especially yeah. acutely at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone's staying at home because we didn't really know what was going on. And now you run the risk if you hang out with your co-residents that you know you get COVID and then you spread yeah. COVID and then you have to activate backup backup because the system doesn't have the capacity to deal with you being out. And so- I mean, I, I literally don't know what some of my residents look like who started during the <laughs> pandemic because I always see them in the hospital with masks. So yeah. if I would see them like outside without a mask, I think I would have a little bit of a trouble recognizing who they are. I can say that about my co-residents. It's like, you know, we take your mask down quickly to eat uh, and then you put it back on and you're like working the other 11 hours of the day with this piece of cloth over your face, you know? And so... Yeah, the human part of it, I think, needs to be acknowledged and and protected for us to, I think, blunt the effects of burnout on folks in medicine, whether it's like physicians or nurses or PAs or anyone that works in the profession, because it's really hard and it takes a lot out of you. Yeah. We've been touching on this theme, but I like to ask my guests, you know, how might we design a healthier life that can come from your perspective as a physician or thoughts on a society and culture as a whole? Hmm. You know, when I talk with my my patients, my primary care patients, and I, I try to apply this to myself, but I think it applies to, to everyone. I think there are like five pillars of health that I think about. I think about exercise. I think about having a healthy diet hydration, sleep, and then mental health. Mm. And I think if we, if we are thoughtful and intentional about 
taking care of ourselves across those five pillars every single day and have ways to help ourselves feel better in that way every single day, then from at least an individual perspective, we could get to a place where we're healthier. But we live in a system and a society that has to enable that to happen at the same time and create time and space for us to do that. And you know, I'm hopeful that we can. I think we're talking more about mental health than we ever have in medicine and more largely in society, which is awesome. At the same time, I harbor some of the same worries that you have that, I mean, I think, you know, that some of like the biggest changes that happen in society and our world come at these times of crisis when the system appears broken, then there's an opportunity to come in and completely revamp it. And we're experiencing that now in healthcare, but I don't see that we're actually going to change anything meaningfully at scale, Mm. but I think we can, and I think we should. We were talking before we recorded about your future plans. You just finished residency training. Are you able to talk a little bit about some of the populations that you might be serving uh, shortly? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have an interest in both primary care and public service because I want to pay it forward and give back to folks who come from disadvantaged positions that I grew up in. And so I've done that through science and trying to study health disparities. I've done that through policies at city and state and federal health sector level work. But, you know, I really wanted to do a few things, you know, coming out of residency. I wanted to be a doctor in like a a substantial and meaningful way. I wanted to still serve in the public sector. And I wanted to like really get my hands dirty and doing operational work and trying to change the way that we take care of the people who are the most vulnerable in our society. Because I think you need to like actually like learn how to do things in order to inform policies and programs to change things at a larger scale. Mm. And so I'm working, I'm going to take a job in New York City where I'm working in the public health care system, taking care of people experiencing homelessness, Mm. where I'll be a primary care doctor half of my time both working in clinic and working on street outreach vans to take care of people who are homeless and then doing some work at the system level in New York City to try to build better systems of care for these people so we could connect them with you know the health services and the social services that they need to try to have a better life so this is not a very lucrative position <laughs> that you're <laughs> chasing after uh, you know persons yeah. who are homeless or experiencing a homelessness and and that population so vulnerable, right? Those five aspects of health, of diet, sleep, exercise, hydration, mental health. If you don't have a home, it's going to be a lot harder to have gains in any of those areas of absolutely. What compels you to work with this population and and to enter into this idea of service? Because I'm excited that a lot more physicians are seeing this as part of being a good physician of caring for the patient, not only at the bedside, but in caring for the communities where they come from. But it has historically not been a something that's been part of medicine. Yeah. I think I have like a probably a personal reason and a professional reason. I think personally, we touched on this a little bit before, like I didn't grow up with much. I remember, you know, sitting on Sunday mornings in the living room with my mom, like cutting up coupons from the newspaper so we could have enough to supplement our food stamps to have food for the week. Mm. You know, I remember, you know, my mom not being able to afford like 
a toy at the grocery store or the the convenience store. It was like a dollar or two because we just didn't have the money. And so it was hard, but we were lucky. You know, I was so lucky that I had a great pediatrician and I was lucky that I was healthy. And my mom was lucky that she was healthy. And if we weren't, we would have been in the same position that of a lot of people that I'll be taking care of. We probably wouldn't have a home. She probably wouldn't have been able to work if I were sick or if she were sick. We would have lost everything. And I probably wouldn't be here. And part of me, you know, it's like, you know, Sadaka, you're you're in such a privileged position now where you're in a position to pay it forward. And it's something that's really important to me is try to help people in these incredibly difficult positions. And it, it also like pisses me off. Like it's not fair that luck and little things with someone health, someone's health could completely change the trajectory of someone's life. And yeah. what if there's a way to to address that to make it better? Mm. And I think that personally that's why I'm like drawn to the work. I think professionally, homelessness is such an important problem and it intersects with everything. Yeah. It intersects with healthcare, intersects with how we think about health more broadly, mental health, substance use, the social sector, think about foster care systems, how do we take care of vulnerable populations? We think about the justice system, we think about society, we think about communities. It's the intersection of everything. Like our values are reflected in, in how we take care of the people who are the most vulnerable in our society. And I think yeah. There's a lot to learn about how things are broken and how we could fix them and hopefully make them better and caring for the most vulnerable people that exist in America. And if we can do a good job and make things better for them, I think whatever solutions we we find, hopefully we could scale to help everyone live a little bit better of a life. I have a thousand more questions, but Sadaka, I think this is a great way to end. Thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for making space for these conversations. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Bon. It's been a it's been a pleasure and I appreciate you. You can find Sudakar Nuthi tweeting at S U D H A K A R N U T I. And reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Pavisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. The cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.